0: And now, Taking Care of Business, your hosts, Craig Moen and Shai Gilad.
1: Welcome to Business Owners Radio, episode 116. Our guest today is Bill Ekstrom, founder and CEO of Excel Institute, the world's first and only organization to measure and quantify leadership effectiveness. He is considered one of the world's top authorities in metric-based performance coaching and growth. Bill is the co-author of the new book, The Coaching Effect, What Great Leaders Do to Increase Sales, Enhance Performance, and Sustain Growth. Good
0: morning, Bill. Welcome to Business Owners Radio.
2: Thanks, Shai. It's fun to be with you, gentlemen.
0: Yeah, we're so excited to have you here today. And, you know, Craig and I both come from a background of coaching, and we just love your book, The Coaching Effect, and maybe you could talk a little bit about what led you to write this book.
2: Well, thank you for that opportunity. There were two direct items. Number one was our clients and friends because of our body of research and work that encouraged us to put something in writing. And number two, the kind of behind the scenes story is that Sarah Worth, my co-author on the book, who's president of that division of our company, that was one of her dream goals is to either author or co-author a book. So unbeknownst to Sarah... I submitted some of our work to a publisher, fully expecting to get rejected because everybody told me we would first time or two or three or 10, who knows. But the long and short of that is we didn't get rejected and our work got accepted. And (laughs) I eventually then had to present to Sarah that, hey, you know, your little dream that you had someday, a dream goal, it came to fruition. So got to be careful what you wish for sometimes.
0: I love that you just went for it, you know, and so clearly something must have inspired you to do that. Was it just to help her fulfill that dream or did something else happen in where you said, you know, there's this concept that's just gnawing at me that needs to be talked about?
2: You know, what's interesting is the motivator literally was one of the things we talk about in the book. One of the high growth, high payoff activities that coaches should do when they're in a leadership role in a business is to do career development planning with the people on their teams. And that's what I was doing with Sarah when she made that comment. We basically give our people homework, go home, fill this in, dreams, aspirations, so on and so forth. We have a litany of questions. We ask them and then they bring them back and present them. And that was one of her responses. So that was literally the trigger that put the book in motion.
0: I love that. I just think it's so great, you know, that you just modeled that whole thing around what great coaches do, right? They pay attention, they actually listen and they think about how can I help this person make progress, right? How can I help make this possible? And, you know, the basis for this whole book talks about coaching versus leadership or managing. And I know you've really internalized this process at Excel, which you just, of course, demonstrated. Let's ground this conversation in that. What is the difference to you in coaching versus leading and managing?
2: Wow, a really powerful question. Not a single thing, but multiple things. First of all, the perception. I'm going to share something that we actually don't have data on, but I've always thought about this. If you, for example, took Frontline New employees that are not in a, a management or leadership role yet or coaching role. And instead of being promoted into a management position, you know, I'm a manager now. If you call that a coaching role, how many more or fewer people would apply to that role? So many times, especially you see in sales departments, well, I want to be in sales management. And if you called it a sales coaching role, it's like, oh, hold on. No, wait a minute. You want me to coach and not manage people? I've always thought that would be an interesting study and we may end up doing that sometime. But the other differences I like are that we understand, I think that people can relate to is followers can have great leadership skills. And when we look at coaching, you have to have a team of people. So that's endemic, right? To be a coach, I got to have people that report to me. I have to have people that I am accountable for growing that I necessarily don't have to have in a leadership role. The other thing is there's so many definitions and understanding and models of leadership. But when we were studying this coaching dynamic, we couldn't find anything out there where people had actually defined it. And that's one of the things that we did in our book is we really worked hard to define what comprises coaching. Most people think of coaching as just a verb and not a noun. When we look at coaching, again, coaches really see themselves as accountable for every input that creates the output, if that makes sense. Meaning that great coaches know how to identify talent, acquire talent, develop talent, strategize, motivate they know what to manage, and when to manage it. They take ownership of everything that spits out an end result that involves people on their team. So long answer to a short question.
0: Well, I think it's a good answer. And it's I think it's really like a mindset, the way that you describe it. And it sounds like it's something that you've internalized, certainly within your organization.
2: We have, in, not only in the world of business, but we've taken our work now to the world of athletics. So we're now measuring and understanding the impact coaches have on the development of the student-athlete experience and also to the classroom. We're now measuring and quantifying the impact teachers have on the growth and performance of students.
0: Yeah. And that's really fascinating. So let's talk about that a little bit. So one of your hypotheses in this book is basically that coaches are the key to performance and growth. And now you're talking about how do you actually measure that kind of a thing? So help us understand like how you actually put that into practice.
2: That's a really good question. So to understand the output that coaches produce in the world of sport, it's usually measured by wins and losses. Unfortunately, in the world of athletics, it shouldn't be just that. It should also be the experience coaches are providing, especially as it relates to student athletes. In the business world, it's usually dollars and cents. So we know what the desired outputs are, and we did enough research, and it was pretty easy to discover what people want as outcomes. So to understand the inputs, you have to understand what leaders or coaches are doing and saying in essence, the inputs that produce the outcomes. And the way we do that is we've done it a couple different ways. Number one, through a software that helps us track what coaches are doing. And I'll use that word synonymously from business to the world of sports and, and even the classroom. So a software program helped us understand how coaches were spending their day what they were doing with the people on their respective teams. If I'm in a sales department and I'm a meter of a sales team, how much of my day is spent in the field? How much of my day is spent in one-on-one meetings? How much or how often am I doing non-salespeople interactive work? So that's one way. And the other way is to go to the people whom they coach, which is the people on their teams, whether it's employees or, or student athletes or students in a classroom. It's surveying them to understand the impact their actions and words are having on those people. And I think sometimes when people think they hear the word, for example, survey, and they're, oh, that's easy or that's cliche. It's really not because it really depends on what you're wanting to know and what you're asking. Let's say we're trying to understand, for example, we know psychological safety has a significant impact on the growth and performance of teams, people on teams. We know that. A coach's ability to connect, create trust-based connections, has a huge impact on the growth and performance of teams. So we have to be able to measure those to understand it. So those are examples of what we do with both software-driven and survey-driven.
1: Bill, there's so much powerful impact with coaches and Shai and I have had some great coaches throughout our careers and the difference in performance is just so impressive. And having been as sales managers in other companies and building our own companies, this coaching effect is so profound. And it's fun watching the development of team members that have had great coaching. They discover so much about themselves. What were you finding in some of the research along those
2: lines? So if we look at The term that we use in the book in The Coaching Effect a lot is a term called discretionary effort, meaning that if you, Craig, are my coach, and let's use a sales department as an example, I'm a salesperson, you're my sales coach, how much more discretionary effort do I give to you because you're my coach? In other words, how many more hours do I work? How much more engaged with the team and the organization am I because of you? How many more calls do I make? How many calls from recruiters don't I take because I'm loyal to not just what we do, but to you as a person. So when we look at what creates discretionary effort, there are a series of behavioral themes and activities in the business world that we're seeing. And the activities are things like one-on-one meetings. And we talk about this in the book. Great coaches are doing consistent one-on-one meetings. They do that career development planning, having those career discussions that we referenced earlier. They provide written feedback, not just oral feedback, but written feedback as well. So those are some examples of what we call high growth activities. But what's interesting is while the activities are critical, but none of those are groundbreaking, I don't think we've, nor are you probably on this radio show right now thinking to yourselves, wow, Bill, those are revolutionary. Thanks so much for sharing the obvious. But what we know, it's the quality and quantity of that activity. So if you tell somebody who sucks as a coach, I'll just be blunt, someone who doesn't have good connections, someone who hasn't created trust or psychological safety, and you say, hey, I've been reading in this book that you should be doing a one-on-one meeting with the people on your team at least once every other week. What you're saying is you're going to force somebody who's bad at coaching to go spend more time with the people whom they are bad at coaching. And that could create negative discretionary effort. So you're forcing me as a salesperson to spend more time with a person I don't like or respect, and now I don't want to do my work. So we refer to it as there's a quantity and a quality component to how great coaches are. And when we think about the quality, we have to think in terms of connection, psychological safety. Uh, structure is another theme, communication, skill development, a coach's ability to develop the skill set. And it's that last piece, I think that was probably the data motivator that caused us to write the book. It was that piece that everybody was saying, oh my gosh, so you're not promoting this, hey, we got to be sweet, we got to be kind, we got to have this big kumbaya group hug fest Tucci performance. And our comment was, no, actually, the data tells you not the opposite of that. But if that's all you're doing, you're leaving a lot of growth on the table because you have to make your people uncomfortable in a healthy way to achieve the growth.
1: Put your people in discomfort was one of the elements in this performance. And can you tell me more about that as far as how is this discomfort represented
2: Way back when, when we were first starting our research and we were looking at low-performing and high-performing teams, and we started this in sales departments because, as you know, they're so easy to measure. Everybody tracks what salespeople do and everybody tracks outcomes, which is sales. And what we were finding is there was a gap between high-performing and low-performing or even average-performing teams. The highest-performing teams, there was this element of tension some of the leaders of those people or, or participants in their teams referred to it as healthy tension. There was an element of discomfort. I was constantly a little bit uncomfortable, but not in a fear based way, in a performance based way. And when I say that, there's a lot of different ways we can create discomfort, one of which is fear. And while that is a motivator that can create discretionary effort, it's temporary. Meaning that if I'm fearful of losing my job or I'm afraid of you as my coach, I will probably do some things above and beyond to stay in the good graces of both the person as well as the organization. But eventually, I'm going to look for a way out.
1: Yeah. As you're saying that, I'm remembering these healthy discomfort sessions throughout history um, as a coach and as even an individual contributor. And you look back upon them and you think, you know, that actually was a good challenge. I felt good about accomplishing when it worked, of course. You know, one of the things that comes to my mind is as business owners, we're building teams and there's always that continuous growth. And now we are in a situation where we are picking out the next sales unit or growth of the sales organization or any organization subset of the business. And you've got some great candidates to be the leads in those. What should I be aware of in choosing, let's say, of three candidates, who would be the better coach?
2: Where I go first, and it's funny, I was talking to a colleague, because we're seeing this in our own organization about this topic, who has already gravitated to that end? Who was already sitting down with other salespeople, using sales again as an example, and just visiting with them and helping them and coaching them? When you have a new hire, which of those three candidates maybe puts their hand up in terms of saying, hey, I'll give them a hand. Or if they need to shadow somebody, send them with me. So it shouldn't be about the top performer because I'll state the obvious, which I know you gentlemen know. There is very little correlation between top performance and sales and a top performing sales coach. They're different skills. My ability to sell is simply should just be a check the box. That should be come and gone. After that, what our research shows, if you look at the top 10 items that creates discretionary effort among salespeople, the top 10 items, number 10 is my sales leader's ability to sell is the least important thing. And the most important thing in our research is their ability to coach me, which then, as we know, comprises a lot of things. But their ability to help me sell more stuff is number one. So their ability to sell, are they hitting numbers? Are they leaning towards already? Are they showing behaviors of a coach? And then third, I think everybody needs to assess the talents of the people on their team. And understand, do they have coaching strengths? And a lot of times, what we see is not really what their strengths are. So, those are three items. You know, some people kind of have, well, we have assessments that can determine good coaching. I haven't seen anything
0: accurate yet. You know, Bill, I'd like to talk about the growth rings. I thought that was such a fascinating concept. You know, we talked a little bit about creating tension, but give us a little bit on this framework, which is one of the key frameworks of the book.
2: The growth rings, when those were introduced in that TED Talk, that really catapulted our work, quite frankly, because what we've done is we've taken some common sense ideas and put them in a model that's very easy to understand. And so the growth rings model shows people how growth occurs. And what it does is it describes four primary environments in which we work, live, and play. And environments are what dictate our growth. And the example I used in the TED talk on this item, and I can't remember if I brought it up in the book or not, using a goldfish, one of the things we found out in our research and using that as an example, was what has the biggest impact on the size of a goldfish is its environment. And which, of course, the goldfish bowl is a huge contributor to the environment. And one of the things, again, in that research we learned is that when goldfish are taken out of a bowl environment and placed in a more robust environment, like a small pond, they can grow to the size of a big fish, (laughs) in essence, is what it is. So the growth rings takes that concept of how environments are impacting our growth and just goes on and explains it. And there's a stagnation environment, which is arguably one of the worst environments you could be in, which creates negative growth. And stagnation examples of that are like, don't think much further than blockbuster video. High-tech companies that don't stay ahead of the curve can go into a negative growth state. Another environment, again, low growth and low performing is called chaos, And really, to understand chaos, we don't have to think much further than the recent pandemic. And this is pretty common, I think, in what we see in business and with leadership. You know you're in a state of chaos when you exhibit one of the three Fs, fight, flight, or freeze. And when you feel those, you know you're in a state of chaos. The other two environments are really where all the growth occurs. One's called order. Order is understanding what's going on in your environment And what is going on in that environment leads to a predictable outcome. And when you think about our lives in general, every bit of comfort that we experience is created by predictability. Likewise, then the fourth environment that creates growth is called complexity. Complexity environment is not about things that are complex. Think of it as the name of an environment where inputs have to change. And when inputs have changed, that means outcomes will be different. And then that creates unpredictability. And unpredictability is what makes us uncomfortable. So it's just the antithesis of order. What it does is it lays out an understanding if we want to continue to grow a business, order is not necessarily bad or evil, but being in it too long is because we miss change. We miss the opportunity for growth. We have to change inputs. So it's really understanding that a new sales quota is a bigger target. I have to evolve. I have to create different inputs to achieve a different end result. And that's what makes us uncomfortable. And if we can intellectualize that, the ability to adapt to it, to accept it, and create it in a healthy way is much more likely to happen.
0: And I'm wondering, you know, in the time since the book has come out, I know you've spoken about this book all around the world and helped a lot of companies and organizations, large and small. What's the most effective implementation of the lessons from the Coaching Effect that you've seen with the companies you've worked with? And what have you learned in the process?
2: We see, which is really fascinating. So we score people on their ability to coach. Our Coaching Effect survey in our work helps us understand on a scale one to 100 how people score, how effective they are in their ability to coach. And what we have found is that So some scores in 84, let's say they're in 84, each point of growth. So next year I'm in 86 and we've done this in sales departments, each increase in coaching effectiveness leads to about $620,000 in additional revenue for the respective teams. Wow. Yeah. It's a big number, but when you think about it, it makes perfect sense as well because If you ask any executive, and I've asked thousands, and we even quit researching it because the answer was always the same, do you believe the growth and performance of a team, be it business, athletics, or anywhere, do you believe the growth and performance of a team reflects how well that team is coached every single time? The answer is, well, of course, Bill, that's obvious. Great. Then why don't we put the resources and understanding as to what that coach is doing? I mean, in sales departments, my goodness, we track when they go to a Starbucks. We know if they stop at a Dunkin' Donuts. Pharma companies typically know how much time they stop and spend in a doctor's office and how many they've called on each and every day. We track every bit of their movement some pharma companies do. They ask them what their coaches are doing. And typically, they can't tell you where they were last quarter, let alone last week. So the need to understand more about the coach is critical because our research shows they have the biggest impact on performance. So what they do, it's not overcomplicated. What we tell organizations to do, it's simple. Number one, measure. Understand how they are coaching today. Quantify it. Get some data on it. Because without data, how are you going to know how to get better? So number one is to measure. Number two, is to then educate and develop. If I know what I'm doing well, for example, if I know that my connection score is a 62 and my structure score is a 94, it's pretty obvious where I need to put attention, right? I have to develop connections with the people on my team so they trust me and want to work with me. So that's where then the education and development component comes in. And then the third step is to analyze and report. And then if there were a four-step, it would be rinse and repeat. It's like the shampoo bottle.
0: You know, Bill, it's such a great insight that we should all be asking ourselves, what can we be doing to develop better coaching throughout our organization? I think another thing I'd love to hear your opinion on is, what can we do every day to improve our own capability as coaches?
2: My answer won't surprise people. It's one of those answers that there will be intellectual understanding to the answer, but a lack of emotional readiness to take action on the answer. My answer then is this. We have to look in the mirror. If you want to grow the people on your team, it begins with that coach. And too often, when we talk about this, we'll say, well, here's what I need to go do with my team. Here's what I need to go do with my salespeople. Here's what I have to go do within the organization. The answer is around, what are you going to do to grow yourself? Because those behaviors, those actions are usually action-based, not thought-based. It's not always about jumping out and spend doing more one-on-one meetings. It's not necessarily jumping in and doing a career development plan. It is looking in the mirror and say, how come my scores aren't perhaps what they should be? Why isn't my team growing the way it should? What is it that I need to do that I need to develop to really enhance the performance of my team? And the only way, and I know this because we've done research on this too, the only way you can truly understand is to get feedback from the people on your team. And don't try and go get that feedback yourself. Don't use that, I should say, as the only tool to do it. You really need to, from a survey perspective, understand from a science point of view, from a data-driven point of view, what you do well and what you don't. Or you're going to look in the mirror and think, I need to be better at X's and O's when X's and O's isn't your challenge at all. It may be creating a psychologically safe environment. It may be challenging the people on your team. So without the data, you don't know. But I tell you this, every bit of growth starts with that coach.
0: Well, I think that's the right message, Bill. And man, we just want to thank you for coming on the show today. We've really enjoyed the conversation.
2: Well, thank you. I've enjoyed it as well. I appreciate my time with you gentlemen.
0: Is there anything else you'd like to share with our listeners?
2: If you want to learn more, I guess the self-promotional thing I'll do is our book, The Coaching Effect, is available at all fine bookstore establishments, Amazon, Barnes & Noble, etc., etc. To learn more about some of the concepts we talked about, I did a TED Talk several years ago that went viral called Why Comfort Will Ruin Your Life. Find that on YouTube. Our website is Excel, E-C-S-E-L-L where you can find a lot of these resources and excelsports.com. And I would like to share that I'm honored to be doing another TED Talk that's going to be delivered in May and out in June. And this one is going to be on a coach's impact on student athletes in the sporting world. So that's coming up too. I'm on all social media stuff. You can find me there. And I love to connect. So anybody who connects, I will respond.
1: Our guest today has been Bill Ekstrom, co-author of the new book, The Coaching Effect, What Great Leaders Do to Increase Sales, Enhance Performance, and Sustain Growth. You can learn more about Bill, as well as find links to his resources and book, all on our website at businessownersradio.com.
0: Thank you for joining us on Business Owners Radio. We hope you enjoyed today's show. As always, you can read more about each episode along with links and offers in the show notes on our website, businessownersradio.com. We want to hear your feedback. Please leave comments on this show or suggestions for upcoming episodes. Tell your fellow business owners about the show and, of course, you would love the stars and comments on iTunes. Till next time, keep taking care of business.